Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Pete Reese, who is going to talk about land flipping. He's the president of RealVest Properties, where he invests in land, and uh, we'll learn what, what land flipping is, if you've never heard of the concept, but um, Pete's also a descendant of royalty, so it's, uh, it's an honor to have him on the show. Thanks <laughs> well, for thanks, on, thanks Pete. for the introduction, Ben. I, I appreciate that, and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into the land flipping and whatever else you want to talk about. Awesome. So let's uh, start with what's your first milestone in real estate? My first milestone in real estate is actually buying our first home, myself and my wife. And that was in the year 2000. We bought a home here in San Diego. It was 195000 Bought it with an FHA loan, 3.5% down, I think. And we wrote it into the contract, the deal where the seller would pay some, some of our closing costs as well. So we kept our uh, out-of-pocket expenses pretty low. And that that property was kind of a big springboard towards other things in real estate. We held it for only two years and then we, uh, we resold it. And I think we made about a $50,000 $50, profit. And then that kind of, kind of uh, spiraled from there. So. Cool. Awesome. And so from there, uh, how did you get to land flipping? Yeah, it was kind of a, kind of a long and winding road as they would say, but, um, so started with that first house, and then we took that money and parlayed it. Um, we we then stepped up into a bigger house, bigger, more expensive house that needed more work. Did some renovations on that place, and we started actually flipping homes. We started buying homes, fixing them up, and then reselling them. That became kind of our full time business and full time focus for a while. This is in the early to mid two thousands, uh, two thousand seven. Well, two thousand six, I got my broker's license. And I got it just so I could get better access to deals because I was buying everything on the MLS. So I could show myself properties. I could, I could, you know, be the first one to check check out these deals without having to wait for an agent. And uh, so I got my my broker's license for that reason. But then the market crashed here in 2007, like completely fell off a cliff. So having that broker license was actually very useful. So I positioned myself as a um, listing broker for the banks, uh, REO foreclosure properties. Those were the only things that were selling. And, uh, and it was nice to be able to have that license and to be able to kind of pivot into that, that pretty quickly. I pivoted out of the land flipping at the time because there weren't many buyers there. The buyers on the market at the time were basically cash buyers and investors. Um, so I did that for a while and that was a, a, a good business at the time. Then I sort of transitioned into working with um, investors, large investment companies that I had kind of got hooked up with through that REO um, listing broker business. And uh, for a while there, I was just finding them deals. Like I was focused on finding them properties. I knew what they were looking for. They were cash buyers. They would close quickly. They'd buy as many property deals as I could find them. So it was a great kind of relationship we had for a while. Uh, after that, I transitioned out of real estate for a while working with the business with my wife uh, regarding blogging and blogger training, kind of like an online education business. 
So that was a real focus of ours for a while. And that was very successful and fun business. But I got the itch to get back into real estate and specifically real estate investing. And I was just trying to figure out what type of model I should go with doing a lot of reading online, listening to podcasts, watching videos, stumbled onto land flipping. And I didn't really, I wasn't an expert in land. Every, my whole business was pretty to that point was all about single family homes. And I saw, you know, anecdotes of people talking about, Hey, I bought this property for 10,000. I sold it for 30,000 in a short amount of time. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'd love to be able to do those types of things. So I bought a training program, went all in on that, ended up uh, in 2021, March of 2021, we resold our first property using the land flipping model. That first, you know, partial year ended up doing about 1.25 in revenue, 1.25 million in revenue and about 50% gross profit margin. So on average, we try to buy a property, say we buy a property for 20,000 and we try to sell it for 40,000 after all is said and done. So at that 50% gross profit margin, we were able, that's what we were able to average on that first uh, year. Second year ended up doing about 3.5 million in revenue. So really stepped it up. Uh, the gross profit margin was slightly under uh, 50%, but still pretty close. And then 2023, looking to do 10 million. So each year we're really trying to step it up and do bigger and better things. Awesome. So it seems pretty simple. You buy land for less than you sell it in some amount of time. Is that what land flipping is? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, and if you want, I can go, kind of go into exactly how we do the model, how we source the deals and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> of course, that's what, that's what I want to yeah. know, because at this point, it seems extremely simple. And I guess it is extremely simple, but obviously execution is is what is where the challenges come in. But um, I guess what I'm first thing I'm wondering is how, you know, why would the person who owns the property not sell it for what you end up selling it after you buy it for? Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a number of reasons. I, the, the biggest analogy that I, I like to say is that we're a convenience buyer. So it's no different than if you have a car, you have a car that you've been driving around, you want to go buy a new car. Uh, in, in most cases, you could, you could sell that car on a private, private market. You could sell that car for quite a bit more than what you could trade it in for at the dealer. You know, people know that they're not getting top dollar when they trade it in at the dealer. But most people trade it in at the dealer because it's a convenience thing. You know, most people don't want to, you know, go through the hassle of putting ads out there, selling it and waiting for the right buyer to come along. They just want to, they just want to trade it in, move on, get their next new car. So we're a convenience buyer in that way. So we pay cash, we close quickly. They don't have to put it on the market with an agent. They don't have to go through this whole process. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, we're just a quick and simple, easy buyer for them. Now, uh, some people have tried to sell it through an agent before, you know, whether they, the agent didn't do their job or the agent overpriced things and it sat on the market for a year. You know, there's all kinds of situations that happen. Um, but, you know, I can't, a lot of times we can't, you know, we don't know what the, their motivation is, but we do know that, um, you know, for some people that, you know, we're a solution that works out well for them. Awesome. So how do you find a good or a potential seller who's got, you know, you can execute your, your business plan with. Yeah, we, we do. We, at this point, we're generating all of our business with direct mail. So we send out actual offer letters in the mail to these people. And these offer letters are based off of average prices per acre in a particular area. And it's, a, you know, it's an aggressive price. Uh, it's a cash 
price that we would buy it for. But uh, we build lists based off of basically it's public records. All the land ownership records and property ownership records are public data. We use some services that actually compile all that data, data and build a list. So we might take a particular county and we'll say, you know, we'll, we'll uh, build a list that's 10 acres and above, something like that. And then we'll take that list and take out all the kind of obvious non-sellers. You know, it could be owned by the city or the county or the railroad or something like that. Uh, everything, everyone else we, gets mailed, you know, and we mail them an offer price. And then that gets the phone ring, the phone's ringing, and we see what kind of deals we can work out when that comes back. Because the thing is, sometimes we're right on with our offer prices. Sometimes we're too high. You know, some there's, maybe there's a problem with the property, and our offer price is, is not really realistic for that. And sometimes we're too low. So sometimes people contact us and they say, hey, we want to sell, but this is where it would take to put put the deal together. And then we see what kind of deal we can negotiate at that time. But basically, when the lead comes in, that's when we're looking at it really in depth, and we're you know we're seeing what we can work out and if if it makes sense for for both our side and their side. Awesome. So, how many times do you think you need to, or how, what's the average amount of times you send a, um, a mailer before you get a response or before you get a deal? Like how how many points of contact are do you need to? Yeah, you know. We we send out when we find an area we like, we send out that that mail every three months. But you know, it uh, it just kind of depends. It's timing, timing for a lot of people. You know, sometimes the timing just isn't right, and maybe they they've got other stuff going on in their lives. So, I may send them a piece of mail this month. They may not respond. They may not even, you know, they might throw it in the trash can. Three months later, their situation may be different. Maybe they've got some money needs. Maybe they they just got their tax bill in the mail for that property and they're just sick of paying it. And uh, maybe at that point they're like, well, maybe I'll give them a call, see what we can do. So it's all about timing. So we're just kind of staying in front of them and, you know, just kind of sending that mail on a regular basis to those areas that we do like. Yeah. And how do you find the areas that you like and what, which areas do you like? Yeah. Well, I like areas where there's good activity, you know, where there's a lot of transactions happening for land things that are listed on the market, things that are selling, and areas where there isn't an oversaturation of inventory. So I look at Zillow, you know, Zillow, Redfin, Realtor.com, all these kind of public sites like that. They have data, you know, they have the, all the land listing data as well. So I pull up a particular county or area and I just look at kind of what the market activity is, how many listings within that acreage range, how many sales sold in the last year, you know, if there's four years worth of inventory, I may not mail that area or, I'm, you know, I may not mail that area. But if I do decide to, I would have to be a little bit more aggressive on my prices because, you know, it's only going to sell if, if the property is priced really aggressively. But mm -hmm. if there's an area where, you know, there's there's it's really, really hot, you know, where there's no listings and there's a ton of sales over the past year then I know I need to bump up my offer prices a little more in order to get, you know, potential deals because anything that I put on the market uh, in that area, if it's a decent property, it will sell pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, um, I guess, like, wh what does your offer letter say? Is it just like a LOI or what's, what's your, what have you learned that is an effective, you know, sales pitch or, or uh, sure. yeah. Yeah. So it's a two page letter. First page is, talking about who we are, 
what we do, why we're contacting them, how we can help them out. Second page is actual purchase agreements, a one-page purchase agreement. Very simple. You know, it's got their acreage on there. It's got their name. It's got their you know, offer price on there and some real basic terms. And that's about it. And some people just sign it and send it back. Um, some people will call us or email us and text us and, you know, see if we can work out a deal with those. But that's that's been the format that's worked out really well for us. Makes sense. Um, and so... Once you acquire a property, um, what's your what's your plan? How long do you typically hold land? What are the costs associated with holding land? Um, yeah, we try to sell things as quickly as possible. Our record is holding it for eleven days only. You know, that's the actual time we own the property, and that that just happened. I think it was last month in February. So, and but on average, it's been about 60 days. At the end of the year, it did tick up to about 75 days on average. Um, but, you know, I think that those hold times are pretty good. 60 to 90 days is, is really uh, realistic in this business on average. You know, we've got some properties, like I said, that sell really quickly. Some properties take longer. You know, they may take, <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're not on top of things, doing our price reductions and things like that. It, you know, I've had ones that are taking nine, 10 months, but I try to avoid those at all, at all possible, uh, every way possible, you know, and, and something, sometimes it just takes longer because we might get it under contract to sell. We go through this whole contract period and then they back out for some reason, you know, and then we get it under contract again. And then those people back, you know, so you get those types of things. Sometimes you're kind of unlucky with certain properties, maybe. So you end up holding them longer, but you know, um, so the, the plan is we always resell our properties with a local agent or broker. And we try to list them at an aggressive price so they'll sell quickly. Awesome. Um, and I guess um, what is the I get, I, I'm so curious about where is the, like, why is there such a an opportunity to, to make profit? You know, why? Like, what's if it's an active market with a lot of transactions, what's stopping someone from just going with broker realizing that some people want to buy their land? Like what's, what's mm -hmm. the competitive advantage you have? Yeah. I'm just the word convenience buyer and we'll close quickly with cash. You know, if they're going to list a property on the market with a, with a broker, even if it's in a hotter market, generally that's a little bit of a time consuming process. The, the agent, the brokers want to come out and evaluate the property. They'll, they'll do a listing up. Uh, they'll put it at a, pro a retail price. Uh, where it may not sell right away. You know, they could be sitting on it for six to nine months to get that kind of retail pricing. And that's just kind of, not, kind of not our model at all. Some people, don't real, some people, their motivation is not to try to squeeze top dollar out of things. You know, I just sold a car. I just had a car that I drove for a few years and I bought a new car. And obviously it, it would have made sense for me to, you know, try to sell it for as much as I could. But Honestly, I was uh, so busy with my business and everything else going on. I was not concerned about squeezing every dollar out of out of that that car sale. So I just went online, did the cars.com thing and or and uh, a couple of the other sites and just picked the best one and just sold it. Like I know I could have sold it for more, but I I got other priorities going on and it really wasn't really wasn't um really wasn't the best idea for me to be so focused on that rather than doing something else. So, right. You literally, so, literally could have more leverage over your time in your other activities. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's got a different situation. 
some people are not concerned about squeezing top dollar out of their properties and uh, they'd rather go for the convenience. Great. So how's the changes in interest rates, changes in the market affecting your, your business in terms of, is it going to be harder to sell? Um, is, is your inventory losing value? Uh, I guess like what are the concerns? Because land is obviously different than cash flowing real estate, but I want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, land is a land is a different different animal altogether. I mean, there are some correlations between the single family house market, you know, which is very tied to interest rates. Land is a little bit different because a lot of the buyers generally are cash. There are some people that buy with land loans, but it's pretty rare. You know, even even when interest rates are super low, maybe 10% of the buyers were using a land loan. More frequently, we get people buying with cash. Who knows where the cash source is? They might be using a home equity line of credit or, you know, refinancing their house in order to get that cash. So there, there is tie-in to there, I'm sure. Uh, we've had, you know, if I if I if I really look at it, we probably had maybe some uh, little longer hold times on some of our properties, but not in, not in all markets, um, just just some. And um, the one thing about land is it's kind of the ultimate asset in a way. And we're in an inflationary environment, obviously. So holding land over time in this type of environment should probably increase in value. So that that's been my take on it. So it's it hasn't we haven't had a trouble selling any of our properties at this point. And if I do notice land value starting to go down, inventory hold times going way up, then I'll just adjust my purchase prices accordingly lower. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Um, and I mean, I, I tend to agree that land is the ultimate asset given that they're, we're not making any more of it and as population increases, that's, you know, literally demand, literally supply. Right. So, um, it's yeah. a pretty good equation. We know econ 101 price, price will go up over time, yeah. especially if you increase the amount of, of dollars in circulation, um, as, inflationary practices of the government is doing. Um, so are there any specific markets that you like and dislike? Um, I guess, do different states have different policies that make it easier or harder to execute? Yeah, yeah. The, your last question there about, you know, some states are easier than others. So I live in California. We don't really do much, no, many deals here at all. We're, we're buying all over the country. But um, we're not opposed to any market, but, you know, some markets are a little bit more difficult. Like some states are a little bit more difficult to do deals. They're all possible to do deals. It's just kind of uh, transaction costs, time, you know, time to get a deal done or time to get a deal closed. Those types of things come into play. And obviously some markets are a lot more active than other markets, but I'm not opposed to any market really in the, in the United States. I don't know if I'd buy anything in Alaska. But it's beautiful out there. But they've got a lot of a lot of inventory of land. I don't know how much is actually public owned land as opposed to you know government or um, owned land. But but uh, plus it's cold up there. But no, I I, I wouldn't be opposed to Alaska even. <laughs> Haven't yeah, sent gotcha. any mail up there though. Yeah, maybe the, I mean I guess the same same uh, forever stamps probably work there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Awesome. So, I guess um, what are the biggest hurdles or obstacles that you, you face in, in your business? I think sometimes um, one thing that I didn't anticipate going into this business was the fact that 
some deals, some purchases just never happen because of title issues. So that's that's one frustrating thing that I run into sometimes. So that's that's a challenge. You know, you you might get a property under contract and never, you know, according to the seller, everything sounds good. They've got clear title, everything's good. But then when they the title report, um, the title search gets done, the title company comes back and says, Okay, well, there's there's 16 heirs that own this property. <laughs> and you know, every single one of them is gonna have to sign because you know, it may be, you know, two generations back. It was left to, you know, uh, some, you know, five brothers and sisters. And then, you know, one of them died or two of them died. And then all their siblings own a piece of it. And, you know, so those type of situations happen sometimes in land. And it's it's tough to anticipate. And when they do come up like that, it, those type of deals never get done. It's just too many, too many people, you know, that you got to get on the same page. And it's rare that something like that would ever happen. So that, that's one challenge that comes up. Yeah, it makes sense. And I guess, uh, what, are, what are the biggest risks in the business? Risks would be buying something that isn't worth what you thought it was worth. So you got to be real careful about doing your research on a property, your due diligence, as we call it. And, uh, you know, just looking real closely at the comps, getting someone out to the site to check it out, walking the property, making sure there's nothing that's a huge red flag about it. But doing your research, you can avoid most mostly all those issues. And so are these purchase agreements saying like if there's a problem, I guess is it like a non-binding purchase agreement? I was mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean the due diligence lasts until the close of, of the escrow. So if there's something that pops up during our, you know, the purchase phase that we don't like, we can we can back out of the deal. Mm -hmm. Cool. It makes sense. Great. So um, I guess what is your biggest piece of advice for someone considering, you know, any path in real estate? And I guess then having, I guess, land flipping as one of the potential options. Big thing is research um, and not just research. I mean, I guess really learning about that business model that you're looking to pursue, learning everything about it, you know, figuring out how to evaluate properties in that way, learning how the, the actual business works. And I'm not just talking about doing uh, kind of onesie twosie types thing things. If you're going to actually go into a any particular niche in real estate or real estate investing, you want to learn everything about that business model and how people are making it work, and how to set up that as a real business. And um, and then as you get going on that, don't get that shiny object syndrome where you're kind of floating around from one big idea to the next. Just take one concept that think that you think really aligns well with you learn everything you can about it and then just just really go all in on it and don't shift to other shiny objects as they come up because they will come up but you'll be awesome. way more successful if you just focus on one thing yeah it makes sense you get the compounding of your your effort in that way and knowledge and everything so it makes yeah. sense so i'm ready for the lightning round sure lightning round here we come let's do it what, what superpower would you want if you could choose any superpower? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I think I'd like to be able to be like Flash and run really fast. Me too. That That's that's mine as well. Uh, <laughs> That'd be a fun one. <laughs> definitely. So what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? A, a really good one. I mean, I, I, I've read a lot of good books or listened to a lot of good books. I normally listen to them on Audible. But one of the one of the really impactful ones that I've listened to uh, recently over the past year was called uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. 
And that's a really useful book because, because, you know, good habits can really amplify your results or produce good results for you. And it's all about, for me, I'm, I'm a habit type person. So once I build a habit, uh, then it, I, I notice certain areas of my life become, you know, infinitely better. So it's a matter of finding good ways and kind of realizing uh, what those habits are all about and how they can kind of improve your life. Yeah. What's the stat? It takes uh, 66 to 270 days to build a habit, depending on how difficult it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that, that tossed around. I'm not sure he's, he's a big believer in that. I think he brought it up in the book um, about that. Cause I think, I think it's different for each kind of habit that you're building, but there's some interesting concepts in there. Like if you, if you do one thing every day, say you brush your teeth every day, but you can't remember to take your vitamins or something like that. It's uh, he has a concept called habit stacking where it's just, you, you create a new habit by just stacking on top of an existing habit that you've already got set up. So you, in, in that case, you would say either like uh, before I brush my teeth, I'm going to take my vitamins every single day, you know, uh, or after, you know, something like that. But and that allows you to actually uh, create a new habit, but then just kind of piggybacking on something else you've already got established and going on. It's so much easier to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what motivates you to continue every day? My family, you know, just providing for my family and my kids. My kids are older now. They're uh, 22, 20, and I've got a 13-year-old, so she's she's my youngest one. But, you know, uh, just doing everything we can for our family. So that's uh, that's what keeps me going. Awesome. They Are they interested in real estate? Yes, my oldest two daughters, the 22 and 20-year-old, they actually flipped some land too. They uh, about um, a little over a year ago, they came to me and they said, hey, dad, uh, we like what you're doing. It's really interesting. Uh, could we do some of these properties too? And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to teach them and maybe teach them a skill that they could just kind of use for their whole life to, to generate income. So I kind of um, started off by, you know, they had $8,000 pulled together to start with. They had a company already set up. They were going to do a different business that didn't materialize. But so they had a corporation, they had $8,000 pulled between them. And then they started um, buying some of the smaller deals that I would just kind of send their way. They, over the course of uh, six or seven deals, I think it was over a little over a year, they took 8,000 and they parlayed it into 84,000. So awesome. And this is just kind of part-time for them, you know? And obviously I'm helping them along the way and kind of guiding them, but they're big believers in land flipping. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's great for them because they don't need to tap into that money at all. So they can just keep on trying to accelerate that pool of money that they've got. Yeah. This actually brought up a question, I guess. Could you, is there, um, are you able to do this with, re- with the retirement accounts or? Yeah. Yep. You are self-directed. Um, Self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've bought properties within within uh, mine, and and done really well on them. My stock purchases not so well in that same right. account. So I'm going to be doing more and more land deals as they come up, or partnering with people on land deals, something like that. Yeah, this seems like because if your if your daughter started with eight thousand dollars, but and they that was each uh I guess if that was in a self-directed IRA, that would be yeah. eighty four thousand dollars without taxes yeah i know Especially if it's the raw growing tax free yeah huh yeah well that's a yeah that's much sounds much faster than the seven percent supposedly 
we're supposed to make a year in the stock market. Yeah, yeah, I know. When you really think about it, and you know, and with stocks too, I mean, there's a lot of uh even if you're buying index funds, there's lots of short-term fluctuations. I mean, I, I actually used to be a stockbroker. That was my first job out of college. And uh, so I know all about that world and I still lose money on stocks every time I try to buy them. Well, <laughs> man, not yeah. so much. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's hard. It's hard. I feel like a lot of times you're, you're in a game where people are, uh, you know, I don't want to say not playing by the rules, but just, have a incredible advantage yeah. over you like the high frequency yeah it, it's um, a rigged game and you don't yeah <laughs> and you don't have all the information that they've got so yeah yeah i think about like the some of the banks have satellites knowing exactly how many people go into every walmart you know like we don't know that yeah yeah and how, how much stuff is in their cart when they come out you can literally see that from the satellite yeah <laughs> crazy yeah so um stock put you on the spot i want to give you a chance for revenge so what's one question you have for me Where do you see yourself in 10 years? In 10 years. That's a, that's, it's a good question. And, um, you know, it's, uh, the vision is, I have a vision, but it's still so many different variables in terms of, you know, we have a family and, you know, those kind of like big, big questions that I, that I, uh, don't, well, but what, don't yeah, have. Like if you were to, if you were to design your, your perfect, you know, future you in 10 years, like what would that be? 10 years. So I'm 21. 31? Okay, yeah. I should have a, a wife by then, I'm thinking. If not, close to, close to having a wife. Um, that we're making a 10 times as much as our, of money. Our, our living expenses are one-tenth of the money we're generating passively from real estate. Okay. Um, so I want full optionality in terms of what I can do with my time and how I spend it. I want to have time to, to spend with my, my family, but also, um, you know, I, I guess the way I see success is that I'm making an impact on people and, and creating value for the world. Um, that's kind of my, my core value. And so, um, in doing so, I'm, I hope that I'm providing value through, I guess, through real estate. I think that it's really interesting to, I really like multifamily given that I can um, provide someone with the physiological need of shelter. I feel like that's a great way of, of uh, adding value. I literally put a roof over people's heads. Feels feels good to know that I'd, I'd be doing that. So um, that's kind of my my vision, my vision that I, I, I guess for 10 years from now, but yeah, I definitely am. I want to, I want to get more clear, but I think I need to start with my, my five-year vision and my uh, <laughs> one year vision. yeah yeah well that's uh, through 10 years of because everyone always asks about five years but 10 years is a little a little more advanced planning i guess but you know that's awesome you've got a, you've got plenty of time to do whatever you want to do 21 i you know who knows i wasn't even you know i had I had no thoughts of any of this type of stuff back then so <laughs> yeah yeah no 10 years is hard because it's like i don't even have like uh a structure for like what my motivation or not my motivations but like what my like what my desires will be at that time or like what my, like what, what does a 31 year old want, want in life? And I guess, I mean, if, if, if they're anything like me now, will be, uh, will be still be on the, on the search for wisdom on the, on the journey oh, to, yeah. to wisdom. Yeah. You will be and it, and it'll, it'll, uh, it'll accelerate over time. So yeah, that's great. You're impressive. You're doing this at 21 years old. Oh, like I said, I was nowhere close. To, I had, had none of these type of, uh, 
thoughts in my head at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was realizing that uh, the power of compounding is a, is a power I have over over many people older than me. Yep. Just given the, you the got time. time on your side. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited for, for that. And I'm excited for your, your daughters as well. It seems like they have a head start on me as well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, they're they're excited about it and they're they're tra- trying to actually uh well this year they're actually um doing their own mailings and, and doing everything that a you know a, any land investor would do on their own without as much of my intervention or help so looking wow. forward to them actually building a real business around it yeah that's awesome well um congrats on that and um hopefully uh hopefully my kids will also uh love real estate as much as i do Thanks. Yeah. Uh, good for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, where can people find out more about you? And um, yeah, any any closing remarks? Yeah. Well, the best place to um, best place to connect with me is to go to my website first of all, which is turningprofit.com. And on there, I do a monthly income report, which is everything about that's happening in my land flipping business. So revenue we took in, profit that month every deal we sold that month, you know, like what we bought it for, what we sold it for, how much profit we made on that deal, how many days we held it for notes on that uh, individual deal, you know, like what, uh, what went well, what didn't go well. My idea behind that is just to provide as much transparency into the business model as possible. That stuff wasn't around when I got into land flipping. So I, I, I think, you know, looking back and thinking like what would have been really valuable for me at the time and it was seeing this kind of stuff so that's why i'm doing it uh, also i'm building an entire community that i just launched at the beginning of january around land flipping and i'll be releasing a free completely free training program in there and uh, you know not selling anything at this point at all and it's just all going to be free and it's going to be everything that uh everything that's in my brain about land flipping and every, everything to uh get a land flipping business off the ground. Um, and then we've got, uh, obviously we're on social media and got a YouTube channel. If you just search for at turning profit, you'll find us there, do income reports on there. And we've got a podcast all about um, land flipping and also other forms of real estate investing. So. Great. Well, I'll definitely check it out and hope everyone else does. Um, Pete and everyone listening, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support, and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.